This is the Edify Podcast for the Servant. It is principally the authority of Scripture that moves the discussion from theology of Scripture uh, to that of preaching. The question that needs to be answered is where, whether or not Scripture becomes something less when it is preached. Does preaching diminish the authority of Scripture, or does your preaching diminish the authority of Scripture? You've seen preachers get up and they'll preach and they'll they'll just highlight certain parts of Scripture. They'll preach a light, fluffy, um, uh, just kind of a uh, jovial-type sermon where it's like, okay, we feel good, but what are we getting? What's the meat of this? feels like it's been watered down. Biblically speaking, the answer is no. Preaching does not in any way diminish the authority of Scripture. When God's Scripture is accurately preached, uh, it, it comes with its full authority. So t- to see this, there's two, mar- two primary texts that are employed, uh, 2 Timothy 2.15 and Titus 2.15. Those are easy. The first, 2 Timothy 2.15, it addresses the task of preparation, and the second addresses the task of preaching. So what will be clear is that a direct line can be drawn from the authority of the word to the authority of the word preached in these two passages. If you don't know those, but let's let's dive into those today. Number one, the task of preaching. Second Timothy two fourteen, Paul exhorts his, you know, protege, if we want to call him that, to solemnly charge certain men to stop and to cease fighting about words that are fruitless and uh that are they're realistically even catastrophic for the hearer. You see people arguing all the time uh, on certain words and certain thoughts that really don't mean a hill of beans. Um, the, these are men who they're, you know, as Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, 7, they're wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make these confident assertions. These people were failing to handle God's word in accord with its, you know, authorial intent. Um, They had a poor hermeneutic, we might say. Um, And this failure provides a backdrop for the exhortation in the the very next verse, 2 Timothy 2.15. So in contrast to these men, Timothy has to, Jake Sutton has to, everybody who preaches the Word of God has to ensure that he accurately represents God's Word to his people for their edification. And that's a task that calls for diligent preparation. So Paul writes, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So the charge to be diligent requires that that Timothy be especially conscientious conscientious, uh, in discharging, putting putting out there, uh, distributing uh, an an obligation. So this this heightened... um, conscientiousness, that's a $3 word, calls for zeal and it calls for eagerness. Um, the word that's that's make every effort in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 9 and in verse 21, it can be rendered that, making every effort. Um, to faithfully discharge um, this, well, let's just call it what it is, an obligation. Timothy would have to employ every means necessary, making every effort uh, there's no, there's no quit. There's fight in this person. There's, there's steam in their stride. There's fire in their crawl. He's going to have to pull out all the stops to take pains with this task. It's, it's going to be that kind of way. Faithfulness and preparation calls for maximum effort. Fellas, do not get up there without having fully, fully prepared, fully in all efforts that you have, 
give the brethren what they should receive. So the the ultimate purpose of this diligence is approval. That that's the reality. But it is not the approval of man that Timothy and you and I has you know that we're seeking. Instead, we're told specifically, it is the approval of God. Timothy, Jake, you must present himself, ourselves, approved to God. So though this is this is this presentation can refer to, to offering a sacrifice on the altar, uh, here here it is essentially equivalent to making oneself or rending oneself that, that is approved. So Timothy must render himself approved in God's sight. That means that he would need to prove himself. Uh, we, we may say genuine on the basis of testing, that this testing anticipates a future examination at the judgment seat of God. Everything that I say, everything that you say, fellas, is is going to, to lay bare open, as the Hebrews writer said, before the eyes of God with whom we have to do. So as such, t- though Timothy must diligently labor in this text for God's approval over his ministry, it's God's ministry, he would have to patiently await a future uh, final verdict. Um, i tell you what, let me grab my New Testament. I want to read Romans 14. That's just come to my mind. Romans 14. Um, let's look at verse 10. If you got your New Testament with you. Romans 14. Um, the New Testament I have handy is the LSB. Uh, pretty pretty decent translation. Um, verse 10. But, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you view your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I say, says the Lord to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Every one of us, everything that we say, everything that we do, word or deed, you know how it goes. It's all to be done for the glory of God. I need to render myself approved to God. Um, another passage is Second Second Corinthians five and verse ten, the, the appearing before the judgment seat. So the outcome for failing to meet God's approval is shame. So by making every effort to render himself approved to God, Timothy would literally need to be a workman un, unashamed. So the shame implied by failing to faithfully discharge this obligation uh, is stunningly described. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, um, 10 through 15, each preacher is pictured as a builder. In some cases, one lays a foundation, then one builds on it. In other cases, one builds on the foundation of another. In either case, whatever it is, the builder must be careful how he builds. The quality of each man's work is going to be tested by fire. If a, if a man's uh, work remains, he's going to receive a reward. But if the fire is con- consumes everything... Well, what does the text say? It says that he will suffer loss. And, and this is not a loss of salvation. We know that. But it is, but it is implication. By implication, it is, it's a loss of reward or a sense of, um, a sense of accommodation or a sense of uh, being thankful that something was rendered fruitful in, in your ministry that you, you ministered. A loss uh, that is surely um, going to be accompanied by shame. So avoiding future shame at the judgment seat of Christ requires one thing for Timothy, one thing for me, one thing for you, Jake, fellas, preachers, expositors of the Word of God, you have to accurately handle the Word of Truth. So though the Word of Truth, in a very narrow sense, refers to the Gospel, Ephesians 1.13, Colossians 1.5, uh, James 1, verse 18, 
it encompasses the whole counsel of God. Um, John MacArthur has a good commentary on 2 Timothy. Um, I want to say it's around page 75, 76, uh, about, about this sort of thing. It's a great read. Um, I, I would get that if I were you. <clears throat> good, good study material. But let's just let's put it as as plain as it is. Biblically speaking, to accurately handle God's word is literally to cut it straight. That's literally what that means. Cut it straight. Timothy was responsible to faithfully represent what God has said in his written word. So to misrepresent God would be tantamount to perjury, uh, the highest crime against heaven. So Timothy would need to make every effort to interpret God's word in a manner consistent with its divine intent. Fellas, it matters what we preach. It matters how we go about the the, the hermeneutic of word, of, of the study that we need to be about. So the fact that Paul exhorts Timothy was as... Um, well, the way that he exhorts him in this way assumes at least um, three fundamental truths. First, it is... It assumes that every passage has an intended meaning, okay? Otherwise, there'd be no way to accurately handle it. So that's the first pillar, or the first fundamental truth, is that this word that has come from God in this verse, it has an actual, accurate meaning. The second, it assumes that it is it is intended, uh, that the intended meaning is discernible. Um, revelation, the word literally means an unveiling, okay? Um John the Revelator says, blessed is the one who hears and understands and comprehends. Okay, we think about Revelation being the hardest book of the New Testament. Um, and and it was not designed to be that way. It was not designed to be something that we couldn't attain to or something that we have just the utmost trouble with and it's just clouded and, and dark and we don't understand. It's called Revelation for a meaning. It's being revealed. Anyway, moving on. They're, they're number one. Every text... Every passage has an intended meaning. Second is that the intended meaning is discernible. God knows that as he gave me this word, I can figure it out. Otherwise, Timothy, otherwise you, otherwise I could not be held accountable for mishandling it. Third, it assumes that when the word of truth is accurately preached, it remains just that, the word of truth. Preaching scripture does not diminish when you preach it, when it comes out of your mouth, there is power in what is being preached. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, the Holy Spirit could have very easily spoke to the, the hearts of those sinners, those people outside of Christ, but he did not. In Acts chapter 2, go and look at all those things. Chapter verse 4, verse gracious, I think 6, 8, 11, 22. Go through Acts chapter 2 and look at every time the word is, is used to say they heard or something was said, or the word that was preached. And notice all throughout chapter 2 how they responded. In Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch, if there was ever a time for the Holy Spirit to go to a person who was reading Scripture and to say, here's the complete full real, revealed will of God, that was the time. But what does he do? He says to Philip, go over there and preach to that man. Speak Jesus to him. And that's what he does. And so the Holy Spirit does not, not come in and give discernment to a sinner somebody apart from the written revelation of God. It comes from his word. So it is powerful, that word of truth that you and I are preaching. So it remains authoritative. Therefore, you, I, Timothy of old, serve as the mouthpiece of Scripture. It is Timothy's responsibility to cut straight God's word and represent him as he has intended to be heard. So this calls for you and I, 
to be diligent in our preparation, both before, um, both I would say both before entering ministry and for each individual preaching uh, event, workshop, whatever it is. If you're going to stand before God's people, if you're going to, or people who are who are lost, who are who who maybe they they are God fears, but they're like Cornelius of old. Even though they got something about them that's good and true, there needs to be something more. Uh, Apollos, if he was fine where he was, he should have been left alone, but he wasn't. He knew everything about the Scripture except the baptism of Jesus Christ. So what do you got to do? A- Annie up. So every time that we stand before any person with God's Word, it requires diligent preparation. Well, let's ask this question. Does preparation necessitate seminary-type training? Does it necessitate a preaching school? Does it necessitate a Bible college or a biblical degree? No, not necessarily. Let's, let's not imply that. Um, in the first century, the Holy Spirit preached through people, and that would be just fine and dandy today if he would come in and give me that ready recollection that the brethren pray for me about and pray for you about. Uh, I'm still waiting on that. I'm sure you are as well. Uh, Holy Spirit, come down and just put some gold pixie dust into my mind and just give me something without me having to study. That'd be great. That way I know I don't, I don't mess it up. But having said that, training from a solid preaching school, Georgia School of Preaching, Memphis School of Preaching, Georgia School of Theology, uh, Brown Trail, Bear Valley, uh, fill in the blank, East Tennessee, uh, over in Carnes, Tri-Cities, I mean, there, there's Carolina schools of preaching. All these different types of, are, are, realistically, this type of training is the most effective and the most effective way to prepare oneself for ministry. So if you're listening to this and you, you did not go to, per se, a preaching school or Bible college or seminary, that does not mean that you are not um, effective in the ministry. Don't ever hear that. Don't ever hear that. We don't have to have those things in order to preach God's Word. If somebody thinks that, then they're foolish. Uh, God's Word is sufficient. But th- consider this. If you were to go to a just a basic mechanic who just has a basic handle on the basic uh, workings of every part of the car, uh, and you got a transmission issue, who are you going to go to? Just the basic mechanic, mechanic who knows a little bit about everything, or do you want to go to somebody who has specialized specifically in transmissions? Somebody who comes from a great school that spe- that specifically is is work. Um, their work is is transmissions. Well, we all know if we're going to have brain surgery, who are you going to go to? Your your local practitioner, or are you going to go to somebody who is a brain specialist? Listen, if somebody's going to work on my brain. Uh, I want them to have every degree. I want them to have everything possible. We want those things in a secular sense, so we should want those things in a in a spiritual sense uh, when it comes to the to the working of of, of preaching and teaching. Uh, if you're not enrolled in things, listen: Harbinger Theological Seminary, uh, Georgia School of Preaching. Uh, those those two specifically are designed for online schooling. Those two are designed uh, for training and and teaching uh, guys who who can't pick up and move and leave. So the, the the teaching and training is there. We just got to seek it. I mean, you're going to be studying anyway. You might as well get a piece of paper for it, and you might as well be trained specifically for it. Some people come to the idea of preaching schools or seminaries or whatever, Bible colleges, and uh, they struggle with that. Um, but, but when it comes to as I said, the physical heart, you would never you would never consider subjecting yourself um, to a heart surgeon who lacked training. So, because why? It's a matter of life and death. How much more so, fellas, is our um, spiritual heart? We want somebody who knows what it is that they're doing. So, the task of preaching, let's, let's 
let's kind of shift our gears uh, to the task of preaching. We, we're talking about the task of preparation. Now shift the gears to the task of preaching. The word of truth proclaimed in a fallen, subjected to futility, Romans chapter 8, human being, uh, vessel does in no way diminish its authority. God has always done that. He has always used people who sin to do his bidding, save Jesus Christ. Uh, every human being who has ever preached the gospel sinned. They sinned before they preached. They may have even sinned while they preached, and they sinned after their preach, a- after their preaching. That that's the nature of this work. This this is heralded by someone who is just as fallen as the next person. Now, we as Christians have been saved by the blood of Jesus. We as Christians are perfected in Christ. We are completed in Christ. But but reality, we're in we're in the stage in between our our salvation and our not yet, okay, our home going, as Paul David Tripp would say. All of us, <coughs> excuse me, are at some point weak and fallible, and there are holes and chinks and weak points in our armor. That does not diminish the authority of the word preached. Fellas, you, you and I, Timothy and Paul, no human being was qualified. The only reason that we are qualified is because God calls us qualified. How does he do it? The Holy Spirit does it through the teaching of the Word. Uh, Jesus has washed our sins away. We keep in step with the Spirit, and therefore we are qualified to do these things, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. You are weak. You are without strength. And if it was not for Jesus, you would be nothing. I know that. You know that. It's like folks would say, I'm not worthy of, of, the, of, of the cross. I'm not worthy of Jesus, and so I'm not going to go to church. Here's the thing. None of us were worthy. That's why it's called grace. Every single one of us who stands up and preach the Word of God, all of us sin. All of us can feel inadequate. All of us can feel, and we are. We really are. He is the one who is right. So accurately handling the word of truth remains true, and it is therefore authoritative. So Titus 2.15, Paul exhorts Titus, another fellow, to preach with all authority. He writes, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority, and let no one disregard you. So as we're shifting gears from the task of preparation to the task of preaching, that's putting the boots on the ground. That's where we've studied ourselves to the point where we're ready to say something. Uh, we were always told in school, um, don't get up there because you have to say something. Uh, get up there because you have something to say. And those are two different things. Paul supplies, there. there's three imperatives um, that, that, may, that needs to characterize faithful preaching. First of it, it requires that Titus speak certain things. So in context, he has to speak the things written in the verses 2 through 14. Um in fact, the section begins uh, with an exhortation, speaking the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Um, there needs to be emphasis added to what is fitting. I tell you what, let's, let's just go there together. Uh, Titus 2. It never hurts to, have, to let the Lord have a word in, you know what I mean? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians. And here we are, Titus. 
if my pages will here we go titus chapter 2 verse 1 let's begin but as for you titus but as for you jake sutton as for you dear listeners speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine older men are to be temperate dignified sensible sound in faith in love and presence older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine teaching what is good so that they may instruct the young women in sensibility to love their husbands to love their children to be sensible pure workers of the home kind being subject to their own husbands so that the word of god will not be slandered likewise urge the younger men to be sensible in all things show yourself to be a model of good works with purity and doctrine dignified sound in word which is irreproachable irreparable um so that the opponent will be will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us urge slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything to be pleasing not contradicting not pilfering but demonstrating all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of god our savior in everything and then you have the wonderful 11 through 14 about the grace of god and what jesus has done to save us so these are the things that are fitting for sound doctrine for Titus in that location what they needed to hear these are clear directives for specific groups and it concludes with a, a, a I guess a summarizing declaration uh, that grace specifically in its context is instructive for godly living 11 through 14 so the implication is that sound doctrine accords with godliness it produces these things Sound doctrine does, not Jake Sutton, not Titus. Titus doesn't come up with something that accords with with godliness. Sound doctrine accords with with godliness. This is consistent with what Paul teaches um, elsewhere, namely that sound doctrine ought to uh, produce a holy life. First Timothy six and three, and so and given given that these verses in in Titus um, chapter two. Um, these things stipulate what what's what the substance of what Titus is to speak. The the exhortation to speak carries the sense of of teaching. Um, author by the name of Knight in his pastoral epistles, as as the the book is called, uh, pick that up and give that a reading if you don't mind. Whenever you can, uh, teaching or instruction is a is a is a feature requisite. In preaching, we know this to be true in Second Timothy four and verse two. But see, it's not it's not sufficient just to teach only. Uh, all preaching is teaching, but not all teaching is preaching. So the second imperative indicates the exhortation is is requisite uh, as well. So to to think about this and in, in to exhort means to urge strongly. And he calls for Titus to impress. That's the word. Impress the directives of verses two through fourteen on to the spiritual hearts of the hearers. And this is consistent with the manner in which Titus is to carry out these features of preaching, namely, with all authority. And it is not with Titus. It is with the word that is preached. So Titus is to preach with a sense of urgency. He is to press the directives for godly living upon the lives of his hearers and appeal to their wills to put them into practice. Titus was not up there quoting verses, giving a college lecture, um, apathetically going about his lesson. It was a sense of urgency and to be urged strongly, pressed into the heart of the hearer. You have to convict and to convince the people. 
Fellas, if your presentation, if your preaching lacks urgency and it lacks the the impressionable impressionable nature that you are you are pressing this into their very soul, then are you really teaching, or rather, are you really preaching? That's a good question. Well, Jake, that's not my personality. Uh, I'm not an urgent type of guy. I'm more of just this or I'm more of just that. Okay, well, talk to Titus about how we should be in our demeanor. There's a couple of books, Power in the Pulpit, Passion in the Pulpit. Um, those are great for, for you to, to read. I would I would suggest those for you for your library. One of those things is about how the Holy Spirit conveys emotions in the text. When we think about preaching, we think about preaching um in a kind of way that it just gets the troops rallied up, you know, and then we think about a preacher who's loud and hollers, and boy, he sure can preach, can't he? He can just, he can preach a hole in the floor. Okay, well, if the Holy Spirit is trying to convey something of sadness, and we convey the text as something of joy, we have mishandled and misshapen Scripture. We have misused the emotions of the Holy Spirit through that word. If we're going to preach something with, with anger, and Jesus would have us preach it with through his text, through something of joy, we have misapplied, we have abused the emotion of the text, we have abused preaching. So it matters, fellas, by the way that we preach. If something is called in a sense of ur- urgency, I cannot be nonchalant about it, or I'm misrepresenting the heartbeat of Scripture. So exhortation includes persuasion. It includes invitation. It includes uh, a verdict to be had. So it brings the hearer to a decisive moment of decision. Here it is right now. What do you decide? That's that's kind of what's being implied when it comes to preaching. Exhortation. So while it is teaching that loads the canon, it is exhortation that fires it. So while instruction describes um, the grenade, it is exhortation that pulls the pin and detonates that grenade. So therefore, Titus' ministry was not to be merely directed to the mind. It was also to be directed to the affections of the will. So now, Paul anticipates that some people will either resist or will attempt to contradict what is taught. The Holy Spirit said, hey, Paul, by the way, Titus is going to run into this, so write this down. So what does he do? That's where he writes that, that exhortation with a very third imperative, reprove. This word has a broad range of meanings, but it likely incorporates, realistically, two, two of those meanings. The first one is to expose, that is to expose sin, uh, to, to break it out. And what this does is this requires shining the light of God's Word on sinful conduct. So the things that he mentions there in that Titus 2 passage, that, that can tell you some of the things and the struggles that they were having as, as Christians. They were, those were the issues at hand. So he was exposing, Paul was exposing the light on the sin of the congregation that Timothy Titus was at. Sinful conduct must clearly be seen for what it is, sin. You notice how we do that. God calls it adultery, we call it an affair. We call it lust, we call it love, God calls it lust. You see how that happens. So we have to expose things for what they really are and what God calls them. The second is to express strong disapproval of that said action. So it is not enough to merely expose sin. Titus needed to be strongly uh, and realistically needed to strongly uh, censure it. Resistance, opposition, 
those things cannot go unchecked. We can't just leave people alone. There has to be a sense of urgency. No, we're not the FBI. No, we're not the Brotherhood Police. No, we're not hiding in the bushes and waiting for somebody to sin. No, 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 no. But if something is clearly there, something is clearly seen, and especially if it's seen publicly, then it must be publicly addressed. Titus must meddle in the sins of of his world. Each of these features of preaching is to be carried out with authority. But Paul does not just indicate with authority, but he says with all authority. The word rendered authority expresses the right uh, or authority to command. So Titus was to preach with a commanding tone. He was not to offer a series of questions or a series of suggestions or, hey, by the way, if you ain't got nothing going on, this might be a good thing to do. This was not to be a conversation. Preaching is not a conversation, nor was it to be a group discussion. Titus was to speak, to exhort, and to reprove in a manner that is indicative of no lack in authority. So let me say that again so that we get the hub of this this task of preaching. You and I are to preach. How so? To speak, exhort, and reprove in a manner that is indicative of no lack in authority. So in fact, what Paul does is Paul puts the exclamation point with this one final exhortation. What is it? Let no one disregard you. The battle line is drawn. It doesn't matter if the song leader, if the deacons, if the Bible class teachers, or pray, God forbid, the elders agree with something that is sinfully done. You, preacher, are the last line of defense, and you are at the helm, and you will drive this ship despite the wasteful and sinful prodigal life that even if the whole church accepts it, you don't. You don't. You will not go down with that ship. You will stand when that world is on fire, and you will be preaching with all imperative, with all authority, and not letting anyone disregard you. The question is asked, are we going to stand when something like this comes up? Are we going to stand when this sin shows up? Are we going to stand when this happens? Are we going to stand for when the elders say this? Or are we going to stand for when that fill in the blank, are we going to stand? The question is, when did we ever sit down? When did we sit down? If that's the case, if you're being, if, if you're questioning yourself, am I going to stand for this? You need to ask yourself, Jake, when did you sit down? When did you allow this to go on? When did you allow this to go unchecked? No, see, we, we've been standing. We've been standing with the, with the Lord, and we're not letting anyone disregard us as gospel preachers. The line is drawn. We are the last defense. We are the herald of God's word. We will speak with all authority. Come what may. But, Jack, I'll lose my job. Lose your job, but do not lose your soul. Titus was not allowed to allow anybody to think around him disdainfully. Instead, he was to see it to it that the apostolic directives of the epistle were carried out. The early church devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Jake Sutton needs to devote himself to the teachings of the apostles. Why? Because they came with all authority through 
the Holy Spirit of God by the pen of those people who wrote. If preaching is to be carried out with this level of authority, it can only mean one thing. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. In no way does preaching diminish the authority of Scripture. It remains just as authoritative when accurately preached as it is in written form. This was this this needs to be a conviction of you and for me. First uh, Thessalonians two thirteen. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what for what it really was the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Paul's preaching of the gospel to the Thessalonian church was nothing less than the preaching of the Word of God. Therefore, the accurate preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. The church where you labor needs to be God-taught. Piedmont Road needs to be God-taught, not Jake-taught. There's three caveats that need to be mentioned at this point. First, the authority of preaching is derived authority. Preaching must conform to Scripture. Scripture is under no obligation to conform to preaching. Scripture is sovereign when it comes to preaching. Second, preaching is only authoritative when it accurately represents Scripture's authorial intent. And this points back to the to the task of preparation we talked about a bit ago. And the word preacher's responsibility to cut straight God's word. Third is the sermon is not the word of God. Instead, the sermon is the servant to it. A sermon includes an introduction, illustration, conclusions, three points, a deathbed story, poem, yada, 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 yada. All of that serves the purpose of either grabbing and maintaining the hearer's attention, and you got to get it in the first five minutes, fellas, or you've lost them, or shedding light on a passage's meaning, telling stories that collaborate with this particular purpose. These are homiletical devices. These facilitate listening. They facilitate clarity. Jesus did it with stories. We can do it with stories. That's fine. The sermon is like a telephone wire that's connecting the preacher to the hearer. Its goal is to remove all the static that the meaning of Scripture comes through very loud and clear. And so when it does, it comes with the full weight of God's authority. Again, the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. That's that's huge. So Whenever the Word of God is now preached in the church by preachers, um, it needs to be said that this is the Word of God that's being proclaimed. And this Word of God needs to be received by by the faithful. Uh, the Word of God is to be, um, I, I guess, not invented. It's not expected uh, from heaven. The Holy Spirit doesn't come and whisper in our ear. No, that's, that's not how this works. The Word of God is comes from the preaching uh, of the Word of God. There's authority when it comes to preaching, fellas. Don't let anybody disregard you. Stand up. Lose your job. Don't lose your soul. Don't forget, you got a task in preparation, and you got a task in preaching. Don't fail on either one of them. Don't be ashamed um, when the Lord stands one day, and we're there with Him, and He says, Jake, where were you? Don't be ashamed then. But how do we do so? By being involved in the preparation and being involved in the preaching of the Word of God. May God be with you in your preparation and your and your preaching.